Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of Super Upper Punch. And today with me in studio from New York Combat Sambo, Mr. Steve Kepfer. How you Yo, doing? What up, man? How are you? Thanks oh. for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, dealing with all these reschedules that we had. It was a little uh, difficult to get you in here, but I'm glad you're here. Yeah, uh, this is New York, man. <laughs> Nothing happens on time. Never, never. As much as we try, as much as we may rush to everything, yep. we still get here late. Truth. But you're here now. Yes. Great. So uh, why don't we start with a little bit about your martial arts story? I did mention New York Combat Sambo, so obviously Sambo is a part of that story. Mm-hmm. But uh, let's uh, go back into young Steve's uh, sure. childhood and beginnings into martial arts. Uh, okay. So it started with my mom, who was a professor at Queens College for her entire career, like a biology professor nice. and genetics, right? So um, in 19, I was, I think I was seven, seven or eight or something like that. So in the early 70s, mid 70s, no, I guess it was 76, 77, something like that. But anyway, she put me basically in, they had like a, at Queens College, they had programs for the kids of the faculty. So they, she put me in Shotokan Karate Shotokan Karate? Yeah. As a, almost like an after school or daycare sort of thing? Yeah, basically like, you know, they are coming into work and, you know, my I had two working parents. My mom, my mom's teacher there and my dad was a fireman. So it was like, uh, you know, drop the kid off of karate. So uh, nice. that was basically it. So that, I did that for like two years. I wouldn't call myself a karate guy by any means, but it, <laughs> it definitely planted the seeds of interest, you know. And then... Um, I didn't really do anything of that again, martial art wise, till high school. So and then high school, which was the um, early '80s, okay, like Taekwondo was the thing, and so I started that, and I did that for many years. Got my black belt in like '93. This was the times when you actually couldn't get a black belt in like two years or whatever. So, but I, okay, well, it was still actually a chore. You still had to yeah, do some work. You still had to work for it, and the test was still pretty hard at the end. Um, and then by the time I was ready for a second degree black belt, my teacher at the time started seeing the dollar signs. You know, ching had a couple of schools, and it was like, oh, the yeah, dreaded dollar. I, yeah, I never took the second degree test because he just wanted so much money for it. And then I, it, then part of that was like I had to sign up for another year. Uh, and I was like, nah, forget it. And then, so I left and then I moved on to Sanchao and uh, some rudimentary grappling of the early 90s, mid 90s era. Okay. And um, What sort of grappling were you doing then? Back then it was really like whatever we could find on video and practicing it in the gym and maybe we knew a blue belt or something that would you know help us or you know like that kind of, that was like the level of grappling it was at so so that, that early almost like shoot fighting sort of style then probably right maybe some yeah, a little bit of catch I mean, wrestling maybe like two or three jujitsu techniques yeah i was at a chinese school so there was some like throws going on because we were doing san chow right yeah. so we were throwing people and then uh in, cer- in terms of the mat work it was a little more experimental like gotcha. you know but we were there i mean we were doing it like it was the thing i remember like in 90 when i i remember the 93 like the same year i got my taekwondo black belt um was the ufc you know the ufc the first ultimate fighting championship which we didn't know it was going to be the first it was just it you yeah, know yeah that's it yeah and uh i remember we were all 
bunch of us crowded around the um, TV, all rooting for like the you know the karate the stand up guys, and then just like at the end of it, like raccoon eyes, like holy cow, like deer in headlights, like around the world. That was everyone's facial expression. Well, yeah, but you know, at that point, people had it basically at that point was like a big fork in the road. So you had the people that bought into the Kool Aid of whatever they were doing. And then the people who realized that they needed to change what they were doing. Absolutely. So I was one of the ones that needed to change, you know. So that sort of combined with my dissatisfaction of the current place where I was training, Mm -hmm. you know, and then just I moved on, you know, to to the new stuff. So then... um, So what brought you to Sambo from there then? Because most people, they saw that and they were like, oh, well, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is obviously the way to go then. And you went to Sambo. So what was that path from there? It, it, in in part, it was kind of just coincidence, you know. So okay. like, I went into Sanchao. I still really liked striking, you know. So I, I went into Sanchao, but we I started learning throws, and then I learned I really liked to throw people, <laughs> and then um, it just seemed practical to me, you know. And then, and my mind has always been like, when all my training has always been geared towards practicality. Even though I was doing like different combat sports, I've competed in a lot of different stuff. Yeah, you know, it's never like world level in or like a national champion or anything like that but i've definitely competed in a lot of different stuff it was one of the reasons i make a good coach i think but it's like um i learned that i like throwing people and we were doing this rudimentary grappling like yeah you know my coach at the time had some basic understanding and then we were just you know buying videotapes and just <laughs> at that time even just trading videotapes that was a thing you'd get on yeah. like the underground forum and people would be like trading videos you know because the internet was still just only kind of becoming a thing yeah yeah it's it's really interesting to see the parallel of mixed martial arts Mm -hmm. and the internet booming and they've kind of spread and and grown into their adolescence together oh yeah mma wouldn't be what it is without the internet not at all it was entirely an internet driven sport especially during the dark years when it was banned and everything the internet was the only place where people could find stuff so, and then it was all chat rooms and message boards and stuff <laughs> like that, you know, and like, um, so that was cool. So eventually though, I, I, um, my first introduction to Sambo was in 98. I mean, I knew what it was from like Oleg Taktarov from yeah. the UFC. Um, but in 98, I competed, my first time competing in grappling was at the Gene LaBelle World Grapples Challenge in Toronto. Judo Gene LaBelle, wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so I went up there, we went up there as a team, and it was awesome. I mean, it was like the grappling community is way more like MMA-oriented than it is now. Like the sport grappling that is there now has its own community. Yeah. But back then it was much more about like, it was much more, I feel like it was much less segregated than it is now. Like, we went up there, and there was, like, judo guys, jiu-jitsu guys, Japanese jiu-jitsu guys, wrestlers, like, MMA fighters. Like, you know, there was no big, like, jiu-jitsu only thing. You know, it was just, like, everybody was just looking for wherever they could do a grappling tournament, you know? So it was everybody all in one place, yeah. very all-inclusive. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And it was, like, Goker was, you know, Goker and Gene were running the tournament, so it had pretty liberal rules. Like, Gary Goodridge won the heavyweight division. <laughs> Gary like, Goodridge. Big, big, big I, daddy Gary Goodrich. Yeah, man. Wow. And then I met, like, um, who did I met? 
Carlos Newton there nice. and who was like who was one of my favorite fighters and then um you know there was like guys like uh Rory McDonald was competing in that I think he was a white belt at the time he like he's been young as hell there's a lot of us who are up there in the early parts of our career you know like when before even Brian Simmons who ended up creating Grappler's Quest yeah hadn't created Grappler's Quest yet he competed at that wow. and that gave him the notion to create Grappler's Quest and then shortly after we had Grappler's Quest so I competed in the first Grappler's Quest you know <laughs> but anyway up in the Toronto thing I took a seminar they did like a uh, you know, a day of all seminars of people. So mm-hmm. I did, it was Goker, Gene, and Oleg Taktarov. And then, so that was the first time I really trained, took any kind of training with like an official real grappling coach. And none of them were jujitsu guys. Okay. You know, and, um, you know, I just loved the whole, uh, I loved the whole, f- the fact that it wasn't, you know, well, even jujitsu back then involved a lot more takedowns and striking. It was a different animal back then, like BJJ. You Very know? different. It's not. It's like diametrically opposed to what it is now. It's like the flip side of the coin. You know, it's like you like back then. I cross trained with a lot of guys that did jujitsu, and like to think about training without addressing like how do you grapple when you're getting punched and stuff like that yeah. was like a normal part of the training. That was regular. Like, I, I used to cross-train with this guy named Dan Gonzalez, who was like Machado black belt. And he was um, a DEA agent. So he would travel around the country for work or whatever, but he would come by our place uh, when he was in New York. We kind of developed a friendship. And he was like, you know, all the warm-ups just involved, like, slap boxing on the ground. <laughs> well, just like everything, you know, like, all right, so how is he going to handle this guard if you're getting punched in the face and like it was much more realistic and now it's more sport based or, or sport jujitsu there are people who sp- now who spend their entire jujitsu career never learning how to grapple when they're getting punched you know? I, I think that's what's great about the uh, rise in um, uh, the combat jujitsu movement the new Eddie Bravo combat jujitsu thing I think is really really necessary just it, it's still not 100% like a fight, but let's just at least give some sort of semblance of realism with I'll give someone him a little bit of credit. You. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's he's like reinventing the wheel, but you know, it's like at it's kind of like needed, right? Because the community moved so far away from its roots. And so he's starting to bring it back, except that he hates wrestling and takedowns and stuff and <laughs> you know, I know people that have been in like, you know, EBI and stuff. And during the rules meeting, he'll literally tell people, don't wrestle, just get to the mat, get to the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, come on, man. You know. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's kind of stupid to to add punch, uh, strikes on the ground and then not really still encourage, like, takedowns. It's getting there. It's getting there. And uh, but we have to take the baby steps. And I'm okay with this baby step. I'm sure soon enough we'll start seeing people starting to shoot for takedowns again because right now... There is such an emphasis on guard pulling and, you know, all these, like, sweeps oh, and stuff off yeah. the back. And th- they're absolutely necessary, but you also need to sometimes go yeah. for a single leg or something, too. No, I, I get I get it, you know. Yeah. It's for, for, for the community that it's in, it's, like, an important step. Yeah. So you're at the seminar. You learn Sambo. You start right. really getting introduced to it. So that then, was in 98. That was in 98. Okay. And then, yeah, so by the next year, I found a Sambo coach in New York, and that's what I was doing. Okay, was it difficult for you to find a Sambo coach around that time? Because um, martial arts was very different in New York City. It, was, it wasn't common, but, you know, in New York, there's a lot of expat 
Russian guys. And so, like, um, yeah, just a friend of mine was like, yo, this guy's teaching over at then, back then it was called Chow's Martial Arts. Then mm-hmm. it eventually became Fight House. Everybody keeps on talking about Fight House. Yeah, Fight House yeah. is not what, you know, I don't even know if they still exist or I don't not. Think they do. Not in the same way, at least. But it used to be a kung fu place uh, under Chow's, mm-hmm. you know. But they had a big uh, loft space. And so literally it was just like this giant loft space was just kind of car- carved into four sections okay. with different te- – a lot of people like Koban's been through there. I think Enzo's been through there. My coach – like people were just – that was the place that people would go to get some space where they could teach. You know what I mean? It was it was kind of cool. We're going to eventually need to do an episode just on Fight House because I think this is the third time it's come up on this show in yeah. as many episodes. Yeah. And then eventually like Chow's kind of – I think they went bankrupt or something and reinvented themselves as Fight House. But it was like the same – place different name yeah different location same idea though and so uh your so my coach is teaching there yeah yeah so somebody's like yo this guy's teaching over there let's go check it out and um and i did and i was hooked and then how did you then go from there to opening up your own facility were you was it all that always in the cards for you or did it kind of just come up organically no it was like kind of forced on me a little (laughs) bit so like my coach was Alex, right? His, Alex Barakoff was his name. He was mm-hmm. he was over there at Chow's and then Fight House. And um, he was, at that time, let me think, he was born in 39. So, like, now we're talking about, like, you know, 98, 99, 99, let's say. So, 60. He was 60. And um, I took the class, the first class. You know, we were chatting, and at that time, I had already had some experience. I'd have four Sancho fights. I grappled in tournaments, like mm-hmm. you know, in addition to like my earlier stuff, like Taekwondo tournaments and even Kung Fu tournaments. I like yeah. whatever. I was always competing in whatever I was. You training. weren't no slouch. Yeah, yeah. And he makes this statement to the class, like, "Oh, Steve's like a seasoned fighter, blah blah." <laughs> Let's like, and then he just kicked the shit out of me, like the sixty-year-old guy just kicked the shit out of me. You know, so I was hooked. Plus. What really hooked me about him was not Sambo, it was him. It, he The way he coached, which I've later discovered is really a very Russian way of coaching, very practical, you know, there was no formality, no mm. belts, no yes sir, no sir, us, none of that bullshit. It was just like get in here and train, more like a wrestling practice, you know mm. what I mean? And I really appreciated that. And then the coming from more traditional stuff my whole life. And then um, he also was very um, scientific in his approach. And he was the first guy that really drove it home to me that, as my my now longtime friend Greg Humphrey says, the way the Russian way of training is you don't fit your body to the technique. You fit the technique to your body. Right? Okay. So it was very much about make it work for you. Don't try and do what that guy don't, you know, it's not like, like in judo, for example, like here's the throw. You must do this throw. Absolutely. This way. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Sambo is the opposite. It'll be like, yeah, that, that's, that doesn't work for you. You're going to have to modify that for you. You know? And I think that goes to the rigidity of certain older types of martial arts that 
they're so steeped in tradition, which is good in a lot of aspects. But when you're trying to get into the brass tacks of what a technique is, yeah. and they're like, nope, this is tradition. You have to learn it this exact yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, well, I don't have arms that are long enough to do that. I don't have a body. I'm 300 pounds. Why am I doing guard right now? <laughs> exactly. Seriously. Yeah. But, you know, it's like that kind of stuff. So I really appreciated that approach. And that's what it – so his coaching style – and his personality and hooked me. It mm-hmm. wasn't Sambo. It just was almost like coincidence that he was Sambo. But he, he could have been anything, and you would have still. Yeah, because he had a Goju karate black belt too, mm-hmm. and um, so his striking that he would teach us was kind of karate-ish, but not entirely. And then um, you know, like hybrid. And he would say, he would say, like, look, your Sambo is going to be yours. It's going to be entirely different than mine. Like, don't even try to do what I do. I'm going to show you what I know. And then he would say, take your Sanchao, take everything else that you learned, put it aside for now. I'm going to show you a bunch of stuff. And then you got to bring that other stuff that you know back in and you got to try and make it fit. It's like that was his whole approach. And I appreciated that. You know? That's the best way, man. Yeah. I always tell my students, I'm like, Yo, whatever you end up making work for you, that's how you got to do it. And there's not going to be any cookie cutter style. Yeah. Yeah, They've yeah. always asked me too when I first started teaching them, "What's the best martial art?" I'm like, "The one that works for you." Exactly. So it was it was cool. So, um, but to your question about how I got to school, so that yes, then yes. in um, I was I stayed with them, you know, until in 2003, he wanted to go back home to Russia, mm-hmm. and you know he had a son over there. His, his mom was still alive, and like all this kind of stuff, and then uh, so. He ended up going back home to Russia, and then I continued at what at that time was like a small training group, um, and it became the school. Nice. Yeah, 15 nice. years ago. Yeah. 15 years, wow. Yeah. Still I remember he went, he went back to Russia like like the week, the month before we invaded Iraq. Oh, okay. Like this that, yeah. Quite a while ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, 15 years makes sense. Yeah. And so now you guys don't just do uh, combat sambo for just sambo stake. You also do some fight choreography stuff as well, which is now primarily what you're doing as well, right? Um, well, I mean, primarily my I still running the gym and teaching is my main gig, right? But um, but the world will know you from. Uh, I don't know. I to be so. Let's just say stunts and stuff was a not natural next step for me. Okay. In my path. You know, I don't really, you know, I'm careful about the fight choreography thing because I haven't really choreographed anything big. Okay. You know, I mean, I've choreographed a few, like, independent film things and stuff, So, but there are definitely people much more worthy of that title gotcha. than me right now. But not that I couldn't, for all you stunt coordinators listening <laughs> out there. But uh, but I'm not there yet. You know, it's, it's a process. So, like, but again, Sambo helped bring me into that, like, um... So if you backtrack to like my childhood, I always wanted to make movies. That was like my goal as a child. Okay. I went to summer camp for making movies, you know, when I was like in junior high school. And even before that, I was making movies with my friends on Super 8, like Kodak Super 8 cameras, editing, learning how to edit just myself. Yeah. Making stupid little like war movies, building models and blowing them up and filming it and just like, you know, it was the, like the fun stuff that every kid does once they get a camera. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, so then I was like, I want to, this is what I want to do, you know? So then I went to, my parents really supported that. So then 
junior high school age, I went to New York Institute of Technology. I don't know if they still do, but they used to do the summer camp like for tech. Mm-hmm. And so they had filmmaking uh, part, you know, camp. So I went to that for like three summers. And that's where I kind of really started more formally learning like how to edit. And back then it was on big Betamax like de- yeah. decks, you know. <laughs> but the concept of editing is the concept of editing. It doesn't matter if it's film, digital, tape, yeah. whatever. How to how to edit is how to edit. So I started um, understanding editing back then. Mm-hmm. And then all through high school, the goal was still film. Um, and so I ended up going and to... And all the while you're still training martial arts. Yeah, that's time, always... Too. That's yeah. been going on like... That's always in the background, always, mm-hmm. you know. But it was never, never the goal. Like, like went back to your other. Like, my coach was like, "Someday I'm gonna hand the gym to you," mm-hmm. and he goes, "Are you gonna take it?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I do. I, yeah, I got you, man." <laughs> I never really thought he was actually gonna, you know, leave or whatever. So like, yeah. then one day he's like, "Okay, so I bought my plane ticket. I'm going back to Russia. So you have to keep running." I was like, "What? Really?" <laughs> But yeah, so I, it was kind of like thrown. So it really it. was forced on. To yeah, you, yeah, totally. Yeah, and so I continued out of at that time out of more of a sense of obligation, I mm-hmm. guess. But um, yeah, so anyway, so high school, I wanted to. I was a musician and an artist growing up, and mm-hmm. it was like so for a while. It was like which way I played in bands, and I was like, which way am I going to go? I played in bands all the way up through through um, grad school, right, and then. Um, but in high school, I chose the art route, wanting to go to movies. So I ended up getting a full scholarship. I went to School of Visual Arts. Oh, okay. And um, But I went for advertising because I don't even know if they had a film department back then. But okay. I went for advertising. Maybe they did, but I don't think they did. Or maybe it just seemed like that, like advertising was the route because they were paying, they were going to pay me to go to college. Yeah. And um, But the plan was to use, learn how to make commercials as like little 30 second movies, you know? And it was a good plan. I mean, I, you know, I, I, and aside from just getting my BFA, I learned how to make storyboards and how to copyright and how to think conceptually about creating these, these 30 second pieces. Nice. And so, um, and you had never thought of marrying these two things that you had been doing martial arts and media. I don't know if it's, I don't it's hard to say, like, if I ever thought of it, but I definitely, I might have, it might have crossed my mind, but I never took it seriously. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, uh, not, probably if I took it super seriously at that time, I would have done it, but, or tried, but um, I didn't, so, like, whatever. <laughs> and then- uh, Too late now. Yeah, so my, my but at the, also in college, like, while I was doing my major in, in advertising- which, by the way, has really helped me now, like, run a business, you know, like, marketing-wise. And, and all my other endeavors in the rest of my life, like, I'm so thankful for, like, my advertising degree, even though I never worked in advertising. You know, it's like, it, it's been super valuable, like, in, in my, the, my success today. It's Still like the, see the parallels today. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's like, good, people man. look at my life path and think it's kind of weird, but it really isn't. It, it kind of all fits together nicely. But, I feel you. Yeah, but so like when I was in college doing the ad thing, I did a I minored in art therapy. So oh, okay. um I really fell in love with that and then so like after I got out of college, that's the 
professional route that I chose. And mm-hmm. I started working in um, group homes at first, and then um, then I went to school. Like after college, I went to school for massage therapy. Actually, I went to Swedish Institute, you know. And then after that, I went to Hofstra for my master's degree in in uh, creative arts therapy. And during that time was when I started working at Maimonides in Brooklyn. We were talking about before yes, we got on yes. air that I worked in on pediatric oncology, intensive care, and um, ICU. A heavy field to be involved yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I did that for almost 10 years. And then, you know, towards the tail end of that, I was running the gym after Alex left. I was running the gym at night, mm-hmm. working at the hospital during the day. I did that for about two years and until it got to the point where it was like I had to make a decision which way I was going to go. So I chose the martial arts, the running the gym full time. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's one hell of a path. <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy path. And then uh, then along that time, like once I started the gym, then YouTube, this thing called YouTube came along. Like out so, of nowhere. Yeah, so like my YouTube account, I think I joined the year that YouTube started like in 05 or 06 or something. You know, f YouTube now that they're they're all corporate because <laughs> like I got kicked off of AdShare. They have all these new things. It's like no love for the original YouTubers. You know what I mean? You don't make enough money. That's it, man. That's it. Nah, you got to follow the model, dude. They, <laughs> if I, if I I'll, I'll just be polite, but they can f off, man. So it's like you can curse. This is the internet. You could say fuck. YouTube. YouTube could suck my balls. I'll there tell you, you why because it's like. <laughs> I've been on there since the beginning. Like so then then all of a sudden they're like, "Now, here's all the criteria. If you want to be part of AdShare, you got to have at least 5,000 subscribers, which that I do have, right? And legit subscribers, not like people who are paying to get subscribers." Yeah. You know what I mean? I have legit subscribers. Like people that have been following me for all this time and continue to follow me for my content, not because like, you know, like whatever. So, but then they're like, you got to, um, I forget what the, the hours, the amount of hours was massive, like 4,000 hours, viewable hours of my channel per yeah. year or some crazy thing like that. Like, there's no way you're going to do that unless you decide I am going to do a full-time program on YouTube and really, and then it needs you to be have a to full-time get, job. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have to, I think a new, a thousand new subscribers per year. So they were like, sorry, you're not going to do that. And so you're you're gone. Yeah, fuck YouTube. We don't, uh, Gifted Sounds doesn't have any pending deals with YouTube, right? No, okay, <laughs> yeah, so then fuck YouTube, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Unless honestly, they do want to start a deal, in which case this is all a joke. But, you know, <laughs> honestly, like, they're, they're struggling because let's, like, we're just changing topics here a little bit. But it's all right, it's all like, right, we got time. Like, my videos, I get way more videos, views on, like, say, Instagram or Facebook or other sources. Mm-hmm. Then my YouTube, I'll put the same video up, you know. What what kind of stuff are you putting up? Well, now it's all like a minute or less, you know, so I can make sure it's on Instagram. uh, And then I'll maybe put longer versions, like technique videos, or like sometimes it'll be like stunt, like practice fights or like things like that. But I'll put something up on Facebook and get like 20,000 views and YouTube is still like a lot lower. Like I Mm -hmm. think... You know, my demographic is not necessarily on YouTube. That's fine. Yeah. That's fine. You still get the audience. I'm still there, but, you know, like I stopped caring about it when they screwed me. So I'm like, (laughs) I'll I'll just devote my energy to other other things. Well, you're not the only one. A lot of people have been pissed about YouTube. You're not the first person I've had this conversation with. So uh, let's uh, then backtrack a little bit. We talked about uh, 
doing stunts. Yep. So how did you get into stunt work then sure. from from there? Um, so I'm I'm pretty much a stunt rookie, really. But the, I got into it through other television work, right? So in so you already know I had this history of interest in in that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So then YouTube comes along and I start making videos, and it kind of reignited my interest in filmmaking. And then I started doing, you know, videos of the school. I started putting up monthly sambo techniques and like kind of. All of a sudden, editing and everything became really accessible, right? Mm -hmm. Technology was making all this stuff accessible. And so I kind of got back into it through the martial arts. And then, um, you know, then the videos were getting some notoriety, you know, like in the niche community that we were in. And then so I got asked to do some content for the website doesn't exist anymore. But Boss Rutten had a website called MMA Today. It was like back in the day yeah and I started creating content for that me and my student Riley Bodycomb were, were creating videos for that okay and, and these are the same thing technique videos uh different stuff we would do it weird some of it was technique some of it was like uh man on the street like literally I did a man on the street hey what is Samba we stood in front of the uh the library on Fifth Avenue the, oh, okay. the research library just like asking people <laughs> what is Sambo the best one was like if you find this video it's still, I know it's still up there, but you find us, we, like most people were like, I don't know what that is, you know? And then like one guy, one, one we had, there was like a group of like sort of hipster people there drinking their coffees and whatever. And it was yeah. like, yo, so, hey, what what is Sambo? And one lady, this was the greatest answer. She thought it was, isn't it that old Mayan like sport where they would like play soccer with the head of their, like <laughs> some person that they captured? I was like, no, but that's awesome. That's not it, though. Not it. But this, like, little girl, she must have been seven or eight, was, like, walking with her dad. And we were like, hey, can we ask you a question? And the father's like, yeah. Like, what is Sambo? And the girl goes, like, isn't that throwing people? Yo! And I was like, what? Who? I was like, that's awesome. So anyway, so I started creating content. And that for, woman is the next yeah. UFC featherweight champion. I don't know. Then I started <laughs> producing DV Imagine. I wonder where she is now. Oh, that man, I hope so. That'd I be hope, awesome. That would be very we cool. We got to find her. We got to track her down. This is what we're going to do. After this, you're going to give me the link to that. We're going to yep. put the link into the description of that. We're going to track that girl down. Let's do it. <laughs> that would be awesome. I want to know where she is. Then you got to have her on the show. That's why this podcast exists, just yeah, to find this woman. Totally. So then I, I produced some DVDs, like, you know, instructional DVDs and things like that. And then, so then in um, my first sort of real foray into like TV was. Um, Human Weapon on History Channel. Ah, Human Weapon. That yeah. was a throwback. Yeah, yeah. That was that was in 2007. That So I was a technical advisor for the Sambo episode. Okay. Um, no on-camera stuff, but basically, you know, hey, we're trying to do this martial arts show and we need Sambo people. So I basically helped them and then like kind of would read their treatments for the episode and mm. like kind of give some feedback and like hey that that's kind of like not really the way sambo is or like you know like whatever technical advisor stuff yeah and then i hooked them up with um my coach in russia igor kornoy and like places to visit in russia and so it was kind of cool so i got involved in that nice and then um did you go with them to russia too no i uh, didn't i didn't but uh hey man it's all good <laughs> i got a credit it's cool that's all you need yeah the imdb baby yeah but, that's it um, no, then I did um, Human Weapon. No, I mean, um, Dahani Tackles the Globe on Travel Channel. I remember season, that yep. one. 
season one finale, and that one I did. I was on in the episode, so okay. like basically, we took Dahani to Russia to train samba with my coach Alex. Okay, and um, they did the whole episode on that, and then um, I got to know some more people, and that was really good because that I, I that was like the first time sort of on a proper set for me, you know. Just like understand, I mean, it was reality TV, so it wasn't a set set. Yeah. But it was like still understanding how all that works in real time, you know. And then um, shortly after that, I did my first stunt job on this music video. That was this was in 2010, and like most people, like in this business, you got to know somebody who mm-hmm. gets you a gig, you know, and then you kind of make the best of it, right? So it's like. I knew a guy who was, the, I knew the performer in this music video. Okay. He's a student of mine, and uh, Jabari Gray. And then um, he's mainly an actor, but he also does uh, singing. So um, he was doing this non union music video. They're like, hey, we need a fight scene in here, you know. So um, so I choreographed the fight scene, trained all the, the actors, and um, appeared in it myself as like a thug, or, you know, like whatever. And um, it was really bad, you know, but it was my first time. <laughs> like, actually, I think the the scene wasn't bad. It was edited really bad. Oh, okay. No offense to the editor. It would take somebody very particular to be able to edit a fight scene, too. You think you just get anybody to edit anything? It's, no. It's... it's really hard. So, like, if you fa- – that was in 2010, and then I didn't do another stunt job until, um, like, 2014. Mm. But if you fast forward, like, just to, like, 2016 – or 2015, I think I forget what, like maybe 2016, to John Wick 2, right? Um, the director Chad Stelsky had contacted me. He's like, "Hey, you know, would you be into coming in and working with our stunt guys on some sambo stuff? We want to do like sambo type throws in the choreography." So um, I was like would anybody actually say no to this? Like, I don't know. Like, you know, snap, I'm there. So uh, I went You had in. just worked on the second one, not the first one as well? I didn't work on the first one. First Although one. Okay. I met some of the team on the first one. Okay. Because um, they came to my gym looking for talent. Mm. And um, so I actually, Vlad Kulikov, who you probably know who he is, but maybe not, but he's- The name is familiar. Yeah, he's Sambo guy, BJJ black belt recently. Um He's been around long time too. Like he actually mm-hmm. won the most technical grappler in the very first Grappler's Quest. Okay. He's like one of my oldest like Sambo friends. You know, he's cool gotcha. dude. Check out his gym. It, it's in. Um, it's in. Uh, he just opened it, so I'm embarrassed to say where. But look up <laughs> Sambo. Uh, look up Kulikov Grappling Academy. All we right. just had the grand opening. And it's near Florida, New York, but it's on the just across the border in New Jersey. Gotcha. Um, great academy. But anyway, so I hooked him up with an audition in for John Wick 1, and he got cast. So if you look in John Wick 1, the scene where um, they're in a church and they've got Wick uh, tied up to a chair. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there's the two Russian bad guys behind him, and then the dude's in- interrogating him. And then uh, Willem Dafoe snipes one of the bad guys through the window. That yeah. guy that gets sniped in the head is is Vlad. That's your guy. Yeah, that's my friend Vlad. Nice. And uh, he actually, Vlad was also in Salt with uh, Angelina Jolie. 
Okay, and it, did you work on that as well? I did not. No, this okay. is just since we're talking about Vlad and how okay. awesome he is. You know, it's like <laughs> so he was like in Salt. He in all the flashback scenes, he played her father, oh, who was okay. supposed to be this great Russian wrestler dude. So um, no dialogue, but he had a lot of screen time in that one. So but, you had only worked on the second movie. So then they they come in to call you to ask you to work. Yeah, yeah, on yeah. just sambifying. Yeah, there. just that you know they're all like seasoned martial artists. All those guys, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's not like they're neophytes or anything. Like uh, Chad, the director used to fight Shudo. He was actually Eric Paulson's roommate back in Japan. Wow! In the early days, he's like a high level judo guy. Lived in Japan for a lot of years. If you go back and look at Eric Paulson's um, old videos of his STX kickboxing system, mm-hmm. the two guys demonstrating the stuff are Chad Stelsky and David Leach, the two guys that went on to create 8711 and who now people know as the director of Atomic Blonde and the director of John Wick and like so these guys all came up through real fighting. Nice. You know, so that's why their movies look their choreography has a very different feel than say um you know other fight choreographers who weren't actual really fighters, you know? Yeah, well that's one of the things I eventually want to ask you is there's been a huge, uh, well, I don't, don't want to say huge, but there definitely has been a, a difference in fight scenes mm-hmm. now compared to years prior, where now you're starting to see actual technique. Yeah, more gritty, see, more real. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, you'll see more more throws and more submissions yeah. even, too, which you know, probably wouldn't think would be as yeah. intuitive on the screen, but For sure. they're finding a way to make it so. Yep. So you attribute it to things like that, yeah, yeah, martial got- artists that are actually making these movies. In part, I attribute it to that. In part, I attribute it to a more educated audience, you know, uh, a culture like like what we were talking about before, like MMA is popular now. Like people have more of an understanding of fighting. Yeah. So when your audience has is ed- more educated about what they're watching, you got to give them what they want. You know, it's like absolutely. Um, nothing against Jean Claude. I love kickboxer. <laughs> I love blood sport and stuff. But and, and that kind of that old like that eighties early 90s fight choreography stuff is awesome for what it is but it wouldn't fly today because people would be like that's not real and the funny thing is like everything that john wick does is not real either like you wouldn't see that's not what a real fight looks like no but the individual parts are more legit if that makes sense you know what i mean there's there's techniques that the 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 person that you're doing them to might not react in the same way that his exactly. opponent reacted in the movie, but you could actually do that. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I see a lot of those throws, and I'm like, yeah, I could hit that on somebody. They yeah, won't totally. die from that, but I could hit that. Yeah, you're not going to, but, like, I remember, to just to quickly answer why I brought up John Wick is because in my interview for that job, I was not even in the, the Screen Actors Guild yet. I was just, you know, just Joe try, just trying to get in to, into the business, and... um during my interview with Chad, it was like he was like, um, "You need to learn how to edit. If you want to be in this business, you need to learn how to edit. Because the worst thing that could happen is like you created this amazing fight scene. The choreography is amazing. It looks good. Everybody feels like it's good, and then it goes into editing room, and the editor uh, just fucks it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he doesn't understand whatever he needs. You know, like camera angles and this sold better than that, or like whatever." So, um, and, and even knowing how to edit, it doesn't mean you're going to necessarily end up in the editing suite, editing whatever project you worked on. If you're lucky, maybe they invite you in, you know, um, 
or show you rough cuts and you yeah. can give notes and like whatever. But it still helps you create the fight better if you know what's going to work once you get in the editing room. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially because then you know what the next process is. You could kind of like set yeah. it up there in the way you choreograph or the way you shoot yeah. the fight scene. Yeah. So that was like in 2014 and I still wasn't in the union and then, or 2015. But shortly before that, I, um, I had create, I had done a uh, documentary called New York MMA. That was my first sort of feature. I did it with, uh, Colleen Poole. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and that was on then how MMA is still illegal in New York. Right. It was like a feature documentary. We got some notoriety. It, we did well in some festivals. And what year was that? You said. Uh, 20, darn, uh, 2014 or, or okay 13 or something like that. So it wasn't that long after that, that MMA became legal. Yeah. It was it's only like, been legal for like, maybe like three years. Yeah. So yeah. Far. It was yeah. like, it, it was like maybe three or four years after the movie came out. Wow. Cause we were, we got on Hulu, we got enough reception that distributor reached out to us and then we got it. We were on Hulu for, for a long time mm-hmm. until, um, Basically, until it got legalized, and I think people stopped caring about it. But <laughs> you can watch, you can see the movie now for free on my on my Vimeo page. Just like search my name, it'll be there. We'll put that in the description as yeah. well. Yeah. So, but anyway, so I had just had a little bit success as a producer of on that movie. Mm-hmm. So one of my former students, uh, this guy, uh, cool dude, Sean Fitzgerald. He's a um, he works in the business in production, also television. Uh, mostly for reality shows and stuff, but he was working on a script uh, for a show that he wanted to pitch called Choke Artist, and it was basically about this guy living in the underground fight world of New York. It took place Mm -hmm. in the contemporary sort of like it's the last bastion of the Wild West of MMA. It's illegal, and, you know, I mean, there was other plot lines in the story arc and stuff, but, but that was sort of the backdrop. So we shot... He asked me, he goes, hey, you want to produce my my short, you know, and, and I was like, yeah, let's do it, man. So, um, and he was, see, again, it goes back to real fighting. He was the first student of mine to ever win a title in anything in MMA. Okay. So he was, he had actually fought and, um, and he actually did fight in, in underground show in New York too, you know? So like he had some life experience behind this. Yeah. And, um, so we raised like eight grand. We hired like, Really good DP, this guy Charles Pokel, who now is like a Sundance nominated, like, you know, like now he's like this whole different level of awesome. But he got to start with you. I got to start with him. That's the way I look uh, at okay. it. You know, so it was like, um, <laughs> the more humble way. It was great for him to, to be part of this, you know. And then, um, so we hired him. We, we hired another uh, uh, camera, B cam guy. We hired a great sound mixer named Gavin Borden, and um, we took the lion's share of that eight thousand dollars to hire a really good crew, you know. And then um, when we cast the when we cast the the, the short, we cast um, Al Iquinta from the UFC, mm, Raging Al. Yep, as the uh, the lead. And I knew Al for a long time. He was he was a former student of mine when I used to teach out in Long Island. So we've been friends for like ever. Yeah. And um, so we shoot this we shoot this uh, ten minute short. Um, came out pretty good, you know. And uh, because Al was in it, it started getting a lot of press. And then um, we ended up making a deal with um, Fox Sports 
uh, exclusivity deal that they could air our short nice. on on Fox Sports on their website. So they did this whole piece on on the on the show and and the you know the the potential show like what we were trying to do and yeah. they showed that they put it on Fox Sports and everything. And um, and Al was mentioning it in like post fight press conferences and UFC and we were getting a lot of a lot of play. Mm. And uh, so once it aired, this is in 2014 still. I got a call from. Uh, a, a stunt person here in New York named Jen Weisenberg, who at that time was like, I mean, she's a choreographer and stunt performer in her own right, but mm-hmm. she was working uh, as an assistant for another guy named Doug Crosby. And Doug, I had met one other time before because he's actually an MMA judge, mm. right? Okay. So, um, but Doug is like the stunt guy. He's done all of Darren Aronofsky's movies. Like he did The Wrestler. He, did, you know, he he was he did Black Swan, Noah, like big 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 huge, time, huge huge yeah. movies, huge yeah. movies veteran. So they called they called us in for a meeting because Aronofsky was planning was considering maybe doing an MMA oriented TV show. And they saw our thing and th- saw some potential or whatever. So we had we had like three meetings with them, mm-hmm. and the show went nowhere. Yeah, as it usually as does. it usually does. But it was a great learning experience because like basically we ended up having to write a seven season story arc because they were like, look, nobody's going to pick up a show unless they know the story can last at least seven seasons. Yeah. you know they don't want the writing to peter out like after season three. So like Sean. Uh, Sean mainly wrote it and just with a little bit of input from me, uh, you know, on a drafts and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But like it was really his writing, you know. And um, but show went nowhere. But what it did for me was it kind of was my intro into the stunt community here in New York. Mm-hmm. And Doug was like, because um, in the short, there's an underground fight club scene that I core underground MMA fight that I choreograph and and everything. And he was like, you should really think about doing this you know so that's when i started th- taking it more seriously it was like in 2014 and then from then until now the last four years it's just been a big hustle trying to you know <laughs> trying to work i got into screen actors guild uh like almost it'll be two years ago in december like you got so your year, card got my card man and yeah, it must uh, feel nice it feels good <laughs> yeah no it feels good i mean i'm lucky like you know I'm very lucky. I'm very fortunate because I know people that like have been trying for years and years, you know, years to get in. And uh, I'm I'm a bit of an outlier in the stunt community getting into it at my age. Yeah. But at the same time, like I have certain advantages, you know, just life experience advantages, but also the fact that I own a gym. So like shortly after that, um, like early in 2015, Doug was hosting a, um, a fight. Uh, fighting for film workshop, right? Oh, okay. So me and who would become my partner in the stunt stuff that we do, Paul Veracci. I mean, we've known each other for like 15 years too, but he's a good martial artist in his own, in his own right. Mm-hmm. But um, we went to this fight, uh, fighting for film thing and met like 40 stunt people that are here in New York, you know, and one of the themes that kept coming up is like, we don't really have anywhere to go train. Ah, okay. And I was like, well, I have a gym, you know? And we got a mailing list started, email list, and Paul and I had had this idea around the same time um, to create a stunt program 
together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like a team sort of or a, like a studio. We're actually thinking much larger than just a team because we're interested in filmmaking and stuff too. But yeah. Um, and we had this idea on a drive up to Montreal like shortly before that, before that workshop, like going up there to for a grappling tournament and, um, you know, eight hours of driving and we were just talking about stuff and we had we came up with this idea to create what is now Breakfall Studios, which is the name of our stunt uh group let's just say it's a work group we'll call it that right now it's kind of like a collective then yeah it's kind of like like the same way that like the wrecking crew was the band for all those like early recordings they were the in-house band you guys have become and we don't charge anything yeah by the way it's all free so it's like i was listening to the your episode of master sky guys and it's like um our breakfall studios is entirely free we don't we don't charge a dime you know so that's great and i'm not gonna say it, it was partly self you know self-interest involved like because if you're trying to make your way into the community the best way to do is open your doors and invite the community into your place and say we're not going to charge you anything so it's like you know so we basically set up what is like an open mat for stunt performers twice a week and we were like uh, and this was in 2015 Mm -hmm. we're like okay, so twice a week for free, stunt performers, everybody come on by, this time slot, this time. And we got, like, inundated. Well, it, for the first couple months, nobody came because nobody knew who the hell we are. Yeah. Who are these guys? They're not stunt guys. They don't know, you know, like, and that's totally justified. Like, we just come into the community and say, you know, you don't, you don't, people can't expect to hang up a shingle and just people show up. People you know? show up, yeah, yeah. So, so it took a lot of time of meeting people and, you know, kind of the networking involved. But once, but now... We're so popular that we we have a we have a sign in sign in every week a check in and mm. the first ten people get in, and usually the checkout you know now we only do it once a week open to everybody yeah um, because what happened is we got flooded over the years we ended up getting flooded with people oh. and like we weren't getting our own training in uh, you know what I mean it was like so now yeah. we have twice a week but one is invite only gotcha and one is open to everybody it's still all free. But one is sort of like our team, for lack of a better word, you know, like, and then one is for anybody, the first 10 people to get on the list. Gotcha. And, uh, and are you seeing a lot of like local guys that are like bigger into the scene that are coming through to this? So it's kind of like the dream team of, of stunt guys coming through. We we get a lot of rookies. We get a lot of, we get, it's a wide variety, you know, like vets, rookies. It's nice because. Kind of like the martial art community, the stunt community is kind of clicky. You know, there are groups and I bet. a lot of group. You know, it's it's very similar. So we try to stay away from the judgment and stay away from the clicks, and we just like from that mentality. So it's like, yo, if you're the first ten on the list, you can come in. The only the only criteria we have is. And we've had to develop this because of overcrowding, and yeah. then like. There's a lot of people who like, you know, I want to be a stunt man or like whatever. And then you're like, and you meet them and you're like, there's no way. In what part of your brain do you think that you can even do this? You know what I mean? It's like, it's a learning process. You got to, you got to learn how to weed the right people out. Yeah. Yeah. So we start, we, so basically now we, we teach on a monthly basis. We teach, uh, falling for rookies workshop, which actually I'm doing later on today. Okay. So this is like. For anybody who wants to come, you're going to f- be falling for three hours, and you'll pretty much know if 
you know, this is really what you want to do or not. You so, know? so that's the class for that guy that, you know, just coming in off the street has nothing. It weeds out people who aren't serious, but it gotcha. also gives us an opportunity to check out everybody's baseline and see, like, what kind of skills they have. And um, so that's that's a prerequisite to be invited to come to the free open training. Gotcha. And then the second prerequisite we've added is that you have to have at least one union stunt job unless you're invited by us okay but if you're coming off the out of the blue we got to know that some stunt coordinator somebody somewhere hired you thought you had something gotcha you know that you're not like that you're just not all fart and no shit you know what i mean like that you're really trying to make this your job gotcha you know? and then the the third criteria is you need a recommendation from either somebody that trains with us or a noted stunt coordinator all right just so we know that you're again like somebody's got to vouch for you that you're you're okay. So this is know? specifically for people that are already kind of on the the they're, stunt track. They're on the track. Now okay. we do but that's but anybody that is considering that track can take our workshops. You know what I mean? Okay. But th- those criteria are for the the open training. Because the open training is not a class. It's not like we don't teach anybody I mean, like, everybody that's there contributes. It's a collective, like you said, right? It's like open mat. It's not open mat in the sense it's a very structured practice. Like, so we we go from one to five. Like, we do a four-hour training straight through. Oh, okay. And um, there is a definite structure. So I would say, like, myself or Paul will, quote, like, moderate it. You know what I mean? And so basically the the four hours goes like this. It's like all your forward rolls, forward tumbling, forward acrobatic stuff, all that kind of stuff, forward falls, forward movements, incorporated with your strikes, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And then um, we'll, after we do that, that usually lasts about 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, And then people are at different levels. So we have guys that are literally like career gymnasts. So like when... Okay, everybody doing cartwheels. Like you do what you can do. So like I, you know, I can't do aerials. I'm, you know, I'm not going to do an aerial yet. Gotcha. Right. So it's like, but I can do cartwheel. I can do one-handed cartwheel. I can do semi-aerial type stuff. I've worked my way. I can, you know, do handstands and like different things. Some other guys can do all that like and get easily six feet off the ground. You know, like that's <laughs> not me. So like we all start the war- the workout at the same place, but. You go with what your skill is. Gotcha. And like, so the gymnast guys will be like giving tips to the non-gymnast guys. Like, okay, so try, you know, putting your hands this way. Try entering your your handstand this way or whatever. That's when the collective aspects yeah. are coming yeah, into yeah. play. Then, then after that, we do a couple rounds of uh, mitts, like two rounds of mitts, like five-minute rounds, like MMA rounds. Yeah. And I'll, me or Paul will will just come up with a combination for the day. Um, and the whole idea is like later on in the practice, we do that those same combinations off the mitts as choreography. So nice. like you have to learn to do the the punches for real, and Flake then you have to learn how yeah. to do them for fake. Gotcha. You know what I mean? But you can't. It's hard to do them for fake if you don't know how to do them for real. So we do two rounds of that, and then we go into like um, a throw like one or two basic throws that mm-hmm. we'll drill for like a month or two. And then from there we'll do like one gun or knife technique, defense technique. And then that's usually another half hour of that stuff, right? The mitts and the throws and the that. 
And then we go back to now our backward movements, all our backfalls, all our backward oh, tumbles, oh, okay. all our backward, you know, back three quarters, back flips, everything backward, right? <laughs> then we do the next set of mitts uh, without the mitts. So now it's reactions. Like, so let's say, let's say like the, the drill in the first part was jab, cross, slip, uh, one, two, slip, two, three, duck, body, body, yeah. you know, something like that. Now in the second half, we do that as choreography, like not as hitting the mitts. So we start practicing the distance. So you start with the jab cross to me and I have to react to that. You have to practice your reactions to the jab cross. And we have to work on camera angles. Like if the camera's over my right shoulder, where do I have to throw the punch to make it look like it actually hits you and and all that kind of stuff. So the second half, we do those two five minute rounds Hmm. of choreography, right? With each person being fighter A and fighter B, and then after the first round, we, we flip. Then we review the throw again, but we add, it, we add to the throw that choreography, like oh, that, those okay. strikes. Oh, okay, so now it's becoming a seamless... Yeah, then it's, coming, it's becoming a little, like, maybe a 10-beat fight. So right. we take those strikes, and now where do we, how can we put that throw into those strikes? Then we take the, the, the weapon move, and we add that to it. So by the end of it, after every single thing, you have... a some sort of a seamless fight scene almost. Yeah, well, that's the whole idea, right? So then after we do that, that now we're into half hour number four, right? So then after that, we go into, um, we break out the crash pads and we start doing the bigger the bigger falls. Wow. Right, so we'll pile up mats about, you know, yo high, like waist high or higher and start doing flips off of them onto the crash pads. Like uh, I'm jumping off of like, four or five foot high things and landing, you know, doing backfalls and side falls and like Mm. all that kind of stuff. And then on the crash pad, you know, and then, um, or with pads on my body and then on the, on the, the regular floor. Yeah. But then, um, we practice all that stuff. And then for the last hour is like open time where people can practice what they want. But what mostly they do is they take that piece of choreography that we just created and they just drill it. They just drill it and break out their cell phones and practice shooting the fight mm-hmm. and seeing why, wow, that looked like shit, that camera angle. I'm going to have to move or you're going to have to adjust your punt, you know, so. Yeah. And then that's the whole four hours. Yeah. So. Uh, All right. Yeah. Uh, well, I think uh, now would be a good time to have Mickey give a question before we wrap up. Okay. Um, well, I have two questions, one serious and one silly. Which one do you want? Give me, give me the serious one first, and it will lead into the silly man. Okay. All right. Um, if you had the chance to train law enforcement um, on how to properly restrain uh, violent civilians who are act- an actual threat to them mm-hmm. or um, anybody that they suspect is being violent, how would you – I do actually that? do that. I have a lot of law enforcement uh, – people i work with okay what's what's that experience like um it's been great i mean generally speaking but let's say i think like anything in life let's just say part of the problem with like law enforcement not knowing how to do certain things is that the training opportunities are just not provided to them you know what i mean so i think it's 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 not an easy problem to solve. Like I recognize that there are problems with like let's just say average let's say NYPD guys who 
you know, are fresh out of the academy, probably never had a fight in their life. And now they're given a, a, a sidearm and told, like, you're going to go, you know, get yourself involved in all these things. And they've never even been punched in the face, you know, and been able to keep their calm in a, in a, in a stressful situation. So it's really difficult, you know, like, and I think that there are a lot of fucked up things that happen that shouldn't happen, but there are also a lot of honest, like, mistakes by scared guys that, that happen. And I, you know, to the general public, all that stuff gets thrown into one pot, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's the problem, you know, like, so, um, and you're never going to have like, you know, like, for example, like I've worked with the, the Lowell police department down in, in Arkansas. Right. But that's a small department of like 20 guys and their training is top notch. Like their defensive tactics training, it's a small department and they can actually spend the time doing it. You cannot do that with the NYPD. It's just too massive. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, so it's, it's, I just don't even know what to say. Like in terms of how you would address this problem on paper, it's like, you got to get the guys trained up, but that's not going to happen. It's just, honestly, it's just not going to happen. They don't have the money for it. There's no will. Like I, for example, I had a couple of students that are diplomatic security, right? Like up until, up until, um, the new UN ambassador, the previous, under the previous administration, the UN ambassador's entire security detail trained at my gym, right? So, among other things, but they 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 trained specifically like sambo, combat sambo with me. And I've had some UN that they're through the State Department, and then I had some other. Uh, well, my point is, they did it because they wanted to do it. They weren't pushed to do it. It wasn't required of them to do it, you know. But they're a small. Um, team that recognizes the need for this kind of skill. So, um, so I've had, I've had students at my gym from the UN that are diplomatic security and they tried to get me in there as a combatives instructor and to set up some classes in the UN. And there was, there was no will from a lot of the other agents because they just felt like they could depend on their firearm, Hmm. you know, and that's sort of like this there's that mentality in a lot of people. It's like, I've got my gun. You it's know. that fire first mentality almost. Yeah. Well, and, and that ties in with the fear and the lack of training and all this other stuff. It ties into a yeah. lot of things. It ties in with like pretty fucked up ideas of what masculinity is in our culture and, and a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. So, but in general, I think like smaller departments can, can do it and larger departments have a big problem doing it, you know? So like I have several students who are NYPD but they do it on their own. You know, it's not an institutionalized thing. So um, I, I don't know how you would address, you know, the problem of untrained law enforcement, you know, and what they're doing in a way seems illogical to com- continue to limit what people are allowed to do. Like, for example, chokes, right? Mm-hmm. Like those of us in martial arts know chokes is the most humane way to end a fight. But we're trained to do it right. You know, I could put a guy to sleep yeah. and nobody's getting hurt, you know. And I do it all the time with students who just want to know what it feels like. You know, they'll be out for a few seconds. I could I could cuff them in that in that time and it'll be no problem. But it's like when you have guys who don't train how to do it right, guys who are under stress, 
guys who are like um like I said before, never been in a situation. Guys who are have preconceived notions about the people that they're dealing with. Like all the things that pile up into this one moment that can end up tragic. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And that's a it's a it's a, it's a, it's a tough question, man. It's I like, think with with chokes in particular, I think it's a lot but the optics of the of the situation like yeah. if you see someone getting choked even if the person tells you don't worry i'm a trained expert to someone that has never seen that before it looks very sure. violent so I, i'm sure, sure, sure that plays a lot into why they don't want to allow chokes but it's, but i mean like yeah. you know like so for example and it, a lot of it, it's the optics of it is how it looks and how the media pushes a concept like so the gentleman that died you know, after selling like illegal Lucy cigarettes Eric because Garner, yeah. yeah, it's like he didn't die because he was choked. He died because four cops or whatever piled on top of him. He was obese. You know, if you look at it, anybody who knows what they're looking at looks at that and is like, there's not really a choke happening there. Yeah. There's like a really sloppy grab around the guy's neck. And a whole bunch of other guys piling on top of a dude so he can't breathe. If anything, he died from chest compression. Exactly, yeah. And that's something from, that I've mentioned, too, because when he had the arm around the neck, he also had uh, his left arm, too. Yeah. And that's yeah, not yeah. proper rear naked choke. So th- that's my point. And now I'm not excusing those cops for what happened, but this whole notion of he was choked and he died from a choke and blah, 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 you know, that's not what happened. Yeah. You had four guys who had no idea how to restrain somebody. Like, back to your original question, like, you know, so nobody's really put on the spot, you know. Like, I, I'm friends with a, uh, with a my, my friend down in Arkansas. His teacher was a career Alaska state trooper, mm-hmm. right? And before that, he was military, like, intelligence and all this kind of stuff. And his partner in Alaska was killed by a guy who had just a, – uh, a convicted felon who had just got out of jail, pulled over for some kind of roadside thing. You know, the uh, the officer didn't know he was, like, just out of jail or whatever. Yeah. He just pulled him over for whatever it was. And um, things ensued. There was a scuffle. Um and the felon killed him and how he killed him was um, by basically he had the guy sort of mounted back mounted like belly down in the in the snow and ice uh. and suffocated the cop the officer by shoving his face into the snow right and he just died and so they what they there's a really good book for those who are interested in this called Cold Weather Defensive Tactics. So what happened is that whole department, again a smaller department who can invest in like training, they were like, hey, we need to reevaluate what we're doing here. And they realized all the defensive tactics training they were doing were nice warm gyms with good footing <laughs> and like all this kind of stuff. And hey, we're in Alaska. And they so what they did it's very Sambo-like if you go back and look at the history of Sambo. What they did is the whole department went out on a frozen lake, put on all their gear, their equipment, their jackets, their parkas, everything, with uh, trainer weapons. All right, beat the shit out of each other. Let's see what we can do. Wow. 
and they realized it, it was like impossible, you know, like, so within minutes, their hands were too cold to actually grab anybody, right? So they couldn't like do gripping, you know, guy got, guy gets mounted and he's trying to bridge and hip escape and stuff and his feet are sliding, sliding on the ice. The snow. He, yeah. he can't do any of the moves that he's trained to do. Um, guys that are trying to restrain people can't because the, the people are moving inside their parkas. They're sliding uh, around like inside their parkas, right? So, and it, sadly, it took someone to die for them to be to be like, yeah, we have to reexamine this, you know? And so they started developing, they started modifying everything they do for, okay, so when we hip escape and we bridge and we're doing stuff, we're not putting, now what they're doing, let's say if you're mounting me mm-hmm. or if I'm, you know, you're in my guard or something like that and I'm on my back, rather than putting my foot on the, ground I'm feeling for your calf you know oh, I'm gonna okay. bridge on your calf because that's something that's not I'm not gonna slip on that so using them as the grip yeah. as the point of yeah yeah the fulcrum point yeah, so exactly. like a lot of foot on hip stuff as well then yeah using the the person's body more not the ground at all because you can't trust the ground to be stable and then it's like uh so for example like choking like re- or rear rear control, like a like a cross face or something like that. Mm-hmm. Guys' hands and fingers were so cold that they couldn't. They couldn't s grip or they couldn't yeah. grip. They couldn't even put cuffs on guys because their hands were so cold. Wow! So they started developing stuff like uh, if I'm behind you, right? Normally, maybe if I a, a short choke, I would gable grip and and do something like this. Yeah. Now what they do is they're hooking their wrists because this this they can still do. Oh, okay. And they're not depending on their fingers, which are numb and, and, you know, they can't do anything. So, And that would normally seem very counterintuitive, but because of given the situation. I've actually used this technique now just in regular grappling when my hands are tired. Like if we're doing gi stuff and my fingers are all beat up from like throwing a lot and I have tape all over my fingers or whatever, like this is a very stable like – Go put your hands like this. Yeah, well, uh, listeners, put, what he's doing is saying put your uh, wrists together, the back of your or tops of your wrists together, and then flex your hands backwards yeah. so they kind of arch over and, the and back side pull, of the wrist. And you can feel that this is like a pretty stable. Yeah, I'm wearing a watch right now, so that's not super it too, intuitive, but it does work. Yeah, it totally works. So like in the moment, they had to come up with all these ideas. But my point is, is that, again, it's a smaller department that can do this you know what i mean but if you think about it half the year here in new york our guys are in our our cops are in the winter yeah you know so this is the stuff that they need to be learning for at least half the year yeah or on a beach in the sand or like whatever like you know it's rough they barely get enough regular training in gyms you know (laughs) to to consider like now we have to look at environmental issues so I don't know the answer. I don't. I really don't know the answer to that question. It's like you know, our our police department is too massive. It's it's unfortunate, you know. And there are some very amazingly good police officers. And then you've got you know, like every community. And then you got the flip side of that too. I just what what really bothers me though is on social media and stuff where there's such negative, just kind of blanket like all cops suck this kind of mentality is like really bothers me you know what i mean 
And I've had students will say stuff to me like off the cuff, like, you know, fuck the police or like whatever. And I'm like, dude, you know, the guy that you were just rolling with is a cop, right? You know that. Yeah. Like, are you crazy? You know? And, and I'll, I'll admit, I have since my childhood had a very strong fear of, of police. Um, it took taking uh, jujitsu and training with a couple of cops yeah. to be like, oh, some of these people are n- normal people. I just, you know, I what, just rolled with Kevin for the past five minutes and he's a nice guy. So, you know, and here's the deal is like horrible things happen throughout history of the fact of, of law enforcement even existing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? The problem now is that it's like the minute something happens, it's blasted, like the world sees it. Yeah. And everybody's judged instantaneously before all the information is out. You know what I mean? So, like, at least get the facts and be like, yeah, that guy was a douchebag, that cop, you know? Yeah. Or, you know, like, for example, like, like uh, the there was the one recently where the, uh, the guy was running around with that pipe that looked like a gun pointing it at people's heads and stuff, mm-hmm. and they shot him. Like, I'm sorry, that dude deserved to be shot. You know, but there was a lot of people that were like, oh, no, shoot him in the knee or you know, like, do the, like, dude, in in the split second, what I would love is for everybody to go get themselves some firearm training and go through one of the courses where you have to, on a split second, decide civilian, not civilian, civilian, not civilian, like, and, and target shoot. Yeah. And that split second where you're like, maybe that's not really a gun, you're going to get shot in that split second if mm-hmm. it's a gun. Yeah. You know? It's the same thing. There was like um, the one recently where the the mentally ill woman was in her apartment with a knife. Yeah. Heard about that one too. And they, they spent enough time like trying to talk her out of it and then she started coming at them with a knife. I'm sorry, but you come at me with a knife, you're getting shot. That one makes sense to me the most. Uh, with the gentleman that was, he had the pipe. Um, the the one weird thing about that one was, uh, they say that everyone in the community knew who he was, and they knew that he was somebody that had been going through a lot of uh, mental instability since they knew him, and they've seen him before. The issue for for that one came in when they found out that the people that were calling the cops were people that were brand new to the neighborhood and hadn't really familiarized themselves with the people that are in that neighborhood. I, there still is that area where it's like when you're in a life or death situation and yeah, you don't know, you need to make that decision. But, that's, but, but as somebody me, that's new in that neighborhood, you also need to familiarize yourself with maybe not everything that I think is an issue is actually an but issue. But that's... To me, that says more about community involvement by police yes. and not about what they did. Absolutely. Because um, I can tell you right now that there's always there's plenty of cases like of the crazy guy in the neighborhood that everybody thought was just a crazy guy until he stuck a knife in someone's throat. Absolutely. So that's true too. It's irrelevant. You know what I mean? What the only thing that matters in that moment is that these police see a guy with a gun. Yeah. That's all that matters. And he's pointing it at people's heads and doing all these crazy things. They can't, they don't have time to make a judgment call. You know what I mean? They don't, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And I can't fault them for that. Now, I mean, whether whether somebody who's known to a community, it, it just makes it to me a more unfortunate situation, but not a bad call. 
You yeah, know what I, mean? I I agree with that. I think the police did the best that they could in that situation. I think it's more on the people that were new to that neighborhood. Then that goes to now then civic engagement and just like community involvement as well, which all these things are so closely tied obviously you yeah, see just because somebody didn't know who was in their neighborhood then it involves then the police getting into a situation and now everyone's saying fuck the police again but they have to realize the the subtlety in all these things too so yeah i get what you're saying and it makes your question that much more impossible to answer yeah so. for sure silly question my silly question is um if you could hurt someone with glitter, how would you hurt them? <laughs> with glitter? Dude, man, glitter is like the herpes of art supplies. Yes. Like, seriously, it just like never leaves you. My thoughts exactly. <laughs> um, if I could hurt them with glitter, I have a pretty sick mind. Wow. I don't know. Oh, I love those answers. <laughs> Remember, share. this is the internet. You could say whatever you want. We're not like PG rated. I know, but I have a rep to uphold here. Uh, I don't know. Okay. It's like... No, I don't know, man. It, it, if I could hurt them with glitter. I'm not going to say what I'm thinking. I'll say it off air. But Uh-oh. You know, no, like, no, no. Come on. Come yeah, on. No, we got to give these listeners uh, something. Yeah, yeah. No, I would but definitely. It, no, it would I be would an enema. I would give them a glitter enema. A glitter enema. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Glitter enema, you know, and then uh, let people, let the listeners' minds wander from there. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you. And then do some neon belly drills. Oh, there you go. Okay, yeah. I uh, had a uh, an incident with a guy on the L train with some glitter. Uh, this guy, I guess, was putting on glitter makeup, and I'm sitting down on the train, like right next to the door. He's standing up next to the guardrail uh, on the side of me, and he has this like little makeup case of glitter, and he gets a ton of gold glitter on me. Oh God! And I'm like looking down on my phone, all of a sudden gold glitter falls down. I'm like, what the fuck? I look up and I see him gold glitter all, all over me, and you know I'm mad, but I'm not gonna fight the guy immediately just because of that. And I'm like, hey man, what the hell? And he's like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. And he you know puts the glitter away for a second, puts it in his pocket. I dust off all the glitter. I'm still pissed, but I'm like, whatever. He put it away couple minutes later more gold glitter starts falling falling on me i look up he's and it's him it again. again and yeah he's doing it again i'm like yo what the hell man and he's like hey hey hey! i said i was sorry okay i'm like wait wait, wait. you said sorry before you're still doing it now yeah, yeah then i'm like all right now i have to fight this guy now i'm starting to think like if i'm gonna fight him on the train how am i gonna go you about throw doing glitter it? in his eyes it'll yeah. be like the the scene from blood sport where he throws the sand the sand in his eyes imagine <laughs> if it's all gold glitter <laughs> Oh, he'd be That'd done. Be awesome. That movie would be a lot shorter than what it was. But I'm immediately like, like, I'm sorry, like jawing off at this guy, going back and forth. And everybody on the train is looking at me like I'm the crazy one. Except this one Dominican guy who's at the end and he's like mouthing fuck him up to me. Oh, nice. <laughs> he's like, get him, fuck him up. And I'm like, that guy's my friend. Long story short, I didn't do anything. You I didn't was do just, anything. I was but... just mad. I was so mad. What was he doing with the glitter? It was just makeup? I, yeah, it was like gold makeup glitter. Like he was dressed like he was about to go to like a punk rock concert. Like yeah. like the tightest skinny jeans I've ever seen, but they were like ripped. He had like a mohawk. He had some uh, like like black eye makeup, Ugh. so he looked like a, a raccoon. But I guess he wanted some, some pizzazz on there, some gold. What kind of self-respecting punk wears glitter? <laughs> if he's listening, I don't know, dude. man. 
Yeah, if you're Grow listening, up. yeah, fuck you. At least it should be black glitter. Yeah, and, there you go. And on that note, thank you so much for indulging me with your answers. <laughs> oh, it was awesome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming out, man. We really appreciate it. Um, is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here? Um, New York Combat Sambo? New York Combat Sambo. I mean, you can find me on every social media thing at Sambo Steve. Twitter, Instagram. Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, even though we hate them. It's Sambo <laughs> Steve. And then uh, just my name on on uh, Facebook and okay and uh, Vimeo and then New York Combat Sambo. You'll find our page on. Okay. New York Combat Sambo dot com. Uh, NY Combat Sambo dot com. Okay. Or US Sambo dot com. All right. And if you're interested in the stunt stuff, it's BreakfallStudios.com. BreakfallStudios.com. Great. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. Steve, thank you very much Yo, for coming thanks, in, man. man. Appreciate it. Yay. And for everyone out there in podcast land, we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Peace. Peace.